Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. A little pop quiz. <laughs> Does anybody remember the first sermon that I preached here? I'm not actually going to quiz you on that. That would be terrible of me. Uh, it actually took me a second to, to fully recall everything that uh, was talked about. But the, the sermon title was simply, Where is the Love? It was the very first sermon that I had the opportunity to preach here almost two years ago. That's crazy that we're, you all have been putting up with me for that long already. Um, but, but in that sermon, I, I began to ask us just a couple of questions. I began to check in and just kind of feel a little bit more about where this church was at, what it might mean for us moving forward. And in doing so, I asked that first, we as a church might make our baseline, everything that makes us who we are, that we might make that love. And then I called us to contemplate the question, where is the love anytime we're about to act or speak? that before we do anything as an individual or as a church, we ask, where is the love of God in this? And then I called us to consider love as more than just a word, but as the very foundation of our identity as a church. And so now I want, us, I want to check in on us. Almost two years later, I want to check in and see where are we on this journey of making love our baseline, of identifying ourselves with this concept that, that is so overused in our culture, but is so pivotal and formative to the church itself. Because, well, it's Valentine's Day. You like, it's, it's obligatory to talk about love whenever it's Valentine's Day, because that's just uh, what we do, right? That's just a part of our culture. So considering love, love as the baseline of our identity as a church, want to take a moment and examine the transfiguration through that lens. Today, in addition to being Valentine's Day, as I said before, is also Transfiguration Sunday, a day in the liturgical church calendar in which we recall when Jesus took three disciples up on the mountain and was transfigured before them. Now, before we get into that, it's, for, it's important to understand the context to which this transfiguration lies. You might recall in the scripture lesson, it begins by saying, six days later, 
Six days later than what? What happened six days before? Look back at Mark chapter 8, and at the very end comes the first time that Jesus tells his disciples that he has to die, that he has to be killed, that he's going to be crucified. And after saying this, Peter takes Jesus and says, we're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And Peter says, even if, we're not going to let this happen to you, but even if it happens to you, then we're going, then, then at least let me come with you and go through that with you. And, and Jesus says that, uh, that famous phrase, get behind me, Satan. Whoa, Jesus, hold on, that's a bit, little bit rude there. What are you trying to say? Um, fun fact, in the Hebrew, the word or name or word, Satan, means adversary. Uh, that which stands between us and an objective. And Jesus says, after saying, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, and he's making eye contact with the other disciples as he says this, he says, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Consider that for a moment. Jesus telling Peter, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Yeah, of course I am, Jesus. I'm a human. That's what I do. I set my mind on human things. We're not quite there to the whole divine things yet. And so six days later, Jesus takes them for a moment to witness divine things. Six days later, Jesus takes his inner circle. Yes, Jesus had an inner circle even inside the other, the 12 disciples, there's a group that's even smaller that Jesus is like best, best friends with, and that's Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on this mountaintop. Now, if you've ever read the Bible before, you know that if something's happening on a mountain, it's about to be a big deal. So this is setting up for us a, a notion that something big's about to happen. And they get up onto this mountaintop, and Mark, uh, the the... Uh, gospel writer Mark here is horribly frustrating as a writer because he provides absolutely zero detail about anything that's going on here. Uh, it just, all we have is they get up onto a high mountain and suddenly Jesus is transfigured before them. And we don't really know what transfigured means. Me, being the millennial that I am, my mind hearkens to Harry Potter and transfiguration classes, but that's not really the same thing that's going on here. Jesus is transfigured. His figure, his outward appearance, is transformed before them. And Peter doesn't really know how to describe this, and Mark doesn't really know how to describe this, except at least they both understand laundry. They at least know enough to say that his clothes were so white that no one on earth could ever bleach them that way. Okay, so we've, we've got at least the laundry part of what's going on here, but that's all the detail we get. They're on a mountaintop. Jesus is transfigured. There's like a lot of whiteness going on. It's, I'm not really sure if it's brightness or whiteness or, or what's really happening. But then, just to make things even crazier, Elijah and Moses show up. Now, how on earth Peter or James or John or Mark, for that matter, knew that it was Moses and Elijah that showed up remains to be seen because both of these people died about uh, close to a thousand years before this is taking place. 
It's a long time for somebody to be dead. And you know, this is before the time of cameras and everything. So how on earth, by just their appearance, Peter knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Mark isn't really all that concerned with it. They just know somehow. So Moses and Elijah are there and they're having like this side conversation with Jesus. And we don't even get to know what they're talking about. How rude. Like, come on, give us a little bit more detail here. This is a huge mountaintop moment. This is the moment that we look to and we, we, we have a whole Sunday built around it. But we have so little detail about what's going on that we don't even get the conversation of what they're having. They're just like talking for a little bit. We don't even know how much time has passed, but thanks to Mark's lack of detail, it feels like it was seconds. And Peter says, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. Okay, sure, that's fine. Let us make three dwellings. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll sleep on the cold hard ground, that's fine. Let us make some dwellings for the three of you all and we'll just keep hanging out here because it's good for us to be here. And we'll stay here a little bit longer, at least through the night. Let us stay here. Plus, it was a long hike up the mountain. I'm a little hungry. It's snack time. Let's make some s'mores, kumbaya. We'll all hang out for a little while. Let's just have this moment, please. And before Jesus can even respond, before they even get a chance to talk to Moses and Elijah, this cloud overshadows them. I don't know why it's always a cloud, but a cloud overshadows them, and there's this ethereal voice that isn't really connected to any person. And that's important because it's a whole lot easier to hear this kind of news from a regular person. But whenever it's from some disembodied voice coming out of clouds, well, we get a little bit more antsy about it. Comes out and says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Two things to note about how important that is, is first off, this is only the second time that the voice of God has shown up in Mark. The first time is at the baptism of Jesus. The heavens open up, spirit descends like a dove. This is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. Second time on the mountaintop, there's a cloud and it says to them, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. That's important. Why? Because six days earlier, Jesus was trying to tell his disciples something, that he has to be crucified, and Peter didn't want to listen to him in that, and so God says, listen to him. And Peter is told, you are setting your mind on human things, not on divine things, and God says, listen to him. It's important. This is God saying, the authority of the voice from which you are hearing, coming from Jesus as he's teaching all these things, that's, that's my authority coming to you. Listen to him. And then suddenly, verse 8 begins, because Mark loves that word, suddenly, and then, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. Apparently the cloud disappears really quickly, and Moses and Elijah are gone just like that, and it's very confusing because they've just been through some ordeal that we have literally no detail about, and it's so frustrating. And then they come down the mountain. And there are several questions that I just want to ask here, because thank you, Mark, for your lack of detail. It's not just Mark. Every gospel writer who recounts this has just as little detail about it. I want to ask, why did they go up on the mountain in the first place? Or maybe a better way to ask that is, why was Jesus transfigured? 
Why did that have to happen that way? Did Jesus have to be transfigured, or was it just some byproduct of being in the presence of Elijah and Moses and then the very uh, voice of God with them? The transfiguration, why? What's going on there? What were Jesus, Moses, and Elijah even talking about? That seems like a pretty significant conversation when you have, if you're, if you're a Jew, a good Jew, like Peter, James, and John were, yes, Jews, they, Christianity wasn't a religion at this point, they were still in the Jewish faith. If you're a good Jew, and suddenly, the founding fathers of your faith, like Moses and Elijah, and now your Messiah, your Savior, are having a conversation that seems like it's going to be a pretty big deal. Imagine having your three biggest heroes just standing around talking to one another. You'd want to listen in, I would imagine, but we don't even get a glimpse into that. And I also want to know, why was the encounter so brief? Why didn't they get to stay there? Why couldn't they make dwelling places and roast up some s'mores and sing kumbaya around a campfire and everything be all good. The very lack of detail that comes from Mark here, that comes with the entire transfiguration experience, tells us one thing. It's not for us to know. It's also not for us to assume the details are left out for a reason. Whether Peter didn't think they were important, or James or John, or Mark, or any of the other gospel writers, or whoever was involved in this thought that, the details aren't important. What is important is this mountaintop experience, this transfiguration moment, and the fact that they cannot stay there. Friends, love, yes, we're going to take it back to love now. Love is not an all-the-time mountaintop experience. It's Valentine's Day, so like I said, I have to talk about love. And in the spirit of Valentine's Day and love, we're going to look, take a brief look at the human experience of love. Anyone here who's been in love before knows that love is not just one big, long, mountaintop experience, which is why so often people claim that the phrase, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, is just a bunch of hogwash. Uh, nobody, if you've ever loved and lost, know that, no, that's very painful. Love is not one big, mountaintop experience. Rather, love is a roller coaster. Ups and downs, mountains and valleys. It's a long journey. Dr. Helen Fisher, uh, this name, I don't know if it rings a bell to you all, but she's the uh, founder of the most popular dating website, Match.com. Um, yeah, I've got to bring Match.com into all of this. This isn't a, an advertisement or a solicitation for service, and I'm not being paid for this. But Dr. Helen Fisher, she, uh, she is also uh, quite the expert. She has her PhD in, uh, in couples studies, in, in studying couples counseling, and most particularly the neurobiology and neuroscience of love. She, in her research, have, has identified three different stages of how human beings fall in love. Stage one is the romance stage. Stage two is the attraction stage. And stage three is the attachment stage. 
Now, bear with me for just a moment. We're actually going to get into the neuroscience of this just a little bit, so I'm going to be using a couple of uh, big words like neurotransmitters and stuff like that. I promise it's all going to make sense once we get through this. In the romance stage, this is what we here today might call the mountaintop stage. Because at the romance stage, this is the very beginning of a love connection being formed, our brains get flooded with dopamine all the time. And if you know anything about dopamine, you know that it's really fun to have a lot of dopamine in your system. It's like really fun because you just feel elated all the time and everything feels wonderful. And also you do things that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Like you drive hours to go see somebody that you, that you love, uh, that you're in this romance stage with. You do some really crazy stuff, go out of your way to do all of these really big romantic gestures for somebody whom you're falling in love with. That's why it's called the mountaintop stage, because you're just absolutely elated, like just about all the time. Because at a biological level, your brain is filled with this neurotransmitter called dopamine which just makes us feel wonderful, like we're on a mountaintop. However, eventually, we end up moving into the attraction stage, and this is the bonding stage of the falling in love portion. This is the journey that happens down the mountain, because your body can't stand to have too much dopamine in its system all the time, so eventually your body starts to back off that dopamine release, and we get into this attraction stage where Instead of dopamine flooding our system, we all of a sudden have two different neurotransmitters called oxytocin and vasopressin. And these uh, two neurotransmitters, they help us connect with the other person in a more enduring way. Your body gets, uh, your body releases oxytocin whenever, like whenever you get a hug from somebody. It's this attachment neurotransmitter that says this person is safe, this is somebody I want to be around and somebody that I want to be around for maybe more time than I had initially planned. This is the attraction stage, when we start to become uh, not just like physically attracted, but emotionally attracted to one another. And then we move into the third stage of falling in love, which is the attachment stage. And this is about the stage where couples start deciding, hey, I think we wanna get married, or I think we're gonna be in this for the long haul. At the attachment stage, this is what we would call the long-term stage. If the, if the romance stage is the mountaintop, the attraction stage is the journey down the mountain, then the, uh, a, the attachment stage is the long-term journey on, like forever. Up mountains, down mountains, going on forever. It's the most enduring stage that we go through, and this is when I'm gonna use, once again, another big word here, the prototypical affective system of care and nurture takes over in our brain. Whenever I say the prototypical affective system, these are primary emotions that occur within human beings. This care-nurture system that happens within us is the same system that takes over if we, if we have children and we want to protect them. When we're in a long-term, enduring relationship, this says, I want to nurture this person. I want this person to feel loved by the way I care for them. This is the one that, uh, that at this stage, uh, our brain takes, takes over with this system to ensure that the relationship lasts. But here's the thing. 
the complicated and sometimes frustrating part about this is once we've reached the attachment stage, we don't really have, at least as often, the huge rush of dopamine. It still does happen, and there are still plenty of moments in a relationship where dopamine comes flooding in, but really, that's kind of backed off a little bit. We don't find ourselves at the mountaintop all the time. After that first stage, there's just less dopamine that's involved in the whole love process, which makes it kind of difficult for some people, and that's whenever we start hearing about there are these like um, mile markers in relationships, like the three-year slump and then the seven-year slump. These are these kind of identifying moments where we're like, all right, this isn't like as much fun as it was in the beginning, so what's going wrong here? Nothing's going wrong. We're just recognizing that we're not meant to be on the mountaintop all the time. Why? Because the mountaintop is small. The mountaintop, you can't really do a whole lot on the mountaintop. You can have really great experiences, but we don't get a whole lot done. If our brains are flooded with dopamine all the time, then we would rarely act rationally in our lives, and we would rarely get anything done in our lives. And so, these stages that we move through in love, the way that our neurobiology acts as we're going through the process of love, gears us up with all this dopamine to say, this is a wonderful thing for me to be experiencing, but then takes us down the mountain into the long journey that says it's worth it to keep going. Love, true love, is about coming down the mountain to go through the hard stuff together. It's not a mountaintop experience all the time. We, as Christians, in this great journey of love, which we are called to by the God of love, is not meant to be a mountaintop experience all the time. Rather, the very act of coming down the mountain is itself an act of love. And the very act of coming down the mountain and continuing the journey even beyond the mountain is an act of love. One of the greatest fallacies of the church is the notion that God can only be found in the church. That God can only be found in the church. I hear, like, really so often people come up to me as a pastor, if they find out that I'm a pastor or just in the church or whatever, people come up to me, like, seriously, so often and say that if people would just come to church more often, then our world would be in a better place because more people would know God. I have to say that's not really true. If more people came to church all the time, you know, that'd be great for our numbers and we have a lot of fun and we could do more things and stuff like that, but God isn't just found at the church. If there's one thing that the Bible teaches us it's about, about where to find God, it's that we should be looking where the people are, wherever the people are. And here's a fun fact. Mountaintops don't hold a whole lot of people. Mountaintops are peaks, small as we go down the mountain, we get more people able to be there, but it's once we get to the bottom and out into the world that the most amount of people are. 
The church is meant to be a mini mountaintop experience where we worship and fellowship and, and have all of these uh, really good uh, experiences that, that trigger every so often these dopamine releases that say, mm, this is nice, this is where I want to be. It's, it's that experience that whenever people leave, they're like, mm, that was a good worship service. Mm, that was nice. And that, that's great. That's, church is meant to be these many mountaintop experiences, but the most beautiful aspect of the transfiguration is that Jesus did not allow the disciples to simply dwell on the mountaintop. In fact, and perhaps even more powerful, Jesus joins the disciples on the trip back down the mountain and into the world, and their ministry continues. And we begin to see their ministry take even more shape and more hold in the community because you can't do a whole lot on the mountaintop. If you're there on the mountaintop all the time, very little gets done. Whether we're talking about the mountaintop of love when you're just flooded with dopamine or we're talking about the mountaintop of religious experiences where we're just constantly encountering God, God did not design human beings to just simply be on the mountaintop all the time. Mountaintop experiences are great, and it's okay and good for us to go to the mountaintop, but this whole notion where Peter says, let us make some dwelling places doesn't hold up very well. There's a reason why we have pews instead of tents in the sanctuary. We don't want you to stay here. Might sound like a, a kind of heretical for me to say that, but we don't want you to just live inside the church. We want you to be able to go out into the world and take this mountaintop experience and then go and transform the world with it. So, here's my challenge for us today. On Transfiguration Valentine Sunday, as we prepare to enter into the season of Lent, my challenge for each of us is to keep loving even at the bottom of the mountain. We are called on a journey of love. And the journey of love takes us up mountains and takes us to the peak of mountains, but then also takes us back down mountains and back into the real world. And it's a roller coaster of hills and valleys, peaks and lows. And that's okay. It's not supposed to be one big mountaintop experience because so much of our world needs us to be in the world. That's what's amazing about all of this. So keep loving, even at the bottom of the mountain, even whenever it's not as easy to love because we're not just flooded with dopamine all the time. Even whenever the oxytocin and the vasopressin back off just a little bit because it's exhausting to produce those neurotransmitters all the time. Even whenever it's difficult. Even whenever you walk out of these doors. Even whenever you're driving home. Even whenever you are going to wherever you have to go this week. Keep loving. That is the great Christian task. That is how the church ends up spreading throughout the world, not just because of these mountaintop experiences, but because we, get, we are willing to go down the mountain, because we are willing to go from the bottom of the mountain out into the rest of the world. We will return to the top of the mountain. God welcomes us to the top of the mountain quite often, but not for us to stay, simply for us to be replenished and then we go down the mountain again 
And let's not forget the most beautiful aspect of the transfiguration. Whereas, once Jesus was transfigured, it might have been so easy for Jesus to ascend with Moses and Elijah to suddenly be gone from sight. Jesus stays. And Jesus comes down the mountain with the disciples. And Jesus walks through ministry with the disciples. And Jesus does the very same with us. So as we prepare to go forth from this place, remember that we go with Jesus down the mountain, out into a world so desperately needing love, to be love. Let us pray.